to learn the proper format. Some of you are doing this longer than others. So I make comments on the format. Um, and in some cases, I just referred you to the writing guide to double check things. Um, so does anybody have a question about anything? It's all good? Mm -hmm. All right. I like it. Great. And I'll, I'll make sure I double check with Govinda as well. All right, so let me see if I have any other um, announcements other than that. We did have a couple of questions that came my way via email. Um, uh, there's one that I'm going to hold off till um, next week. That was really a question that has to do with um, really in regard to rubric and what we do and what we don't do. And we're going to be addressing the Roman Missal next week. So I'd like to hold off on that question. Uh, but one of the questions was regarding praying the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei in Latin. Um, the, uh, the person asking, I don't remember any of these prayers being prayed in the manner in years past. It just seems to have developed at some point. Point. Now, I'm assuming that, um, well, I didn't miss them anything. <laughs> but anyway, I think you might have read or you heard me say in Sacrosanctum Concilium, it really told us never to do away with Latin. That was a misunderstanding. It never said, you know, totally, but, you know, we. From lack of reading the document, that's what happened. So in more recent years, now when I say recent, I'm talking 20 years or so. Um, we began in some places, not all, certainly, uh, particularly at masses where there was music, to at particular seasons, to sing, for example, the Agnus Dei, Agnus Dei in Latin, just to like change the, um, just the character of the season. That was a common thing in two parishes I worked in. During Lent, we'd switch to singing the Agnus Dei in Latin. Um, so that is something that we've seen uh, creep, creep in, but appropriately so. Um, and as well with the Sanctus as well. Um, the Kyrie, which I've mentioned before, is not Latin, it's Greek, and it's, it's just been kept from the original, and occasionally we use Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, instead of Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Um, I even checked with some musicians that I know, and maybe Altamore, if you have something to add to this. Um, the only answer I really got was the changing of the seasons to, to change the character, so to speak, that perhaps singing the Agnus Dei, certain settings, led to a more perhaps somber tone of the season of Lent. But I also think that um, more people, perhaps I hope, are understanding that we were never supposed to throw away Latin completely. So they are reintroducing certain parts of the mass, and again, appropriately so, using Latin. 
because as the document says, uh, it certainly is part of our heritage, and we don't want to lose it. Now, we probably have two generations of people who have lost it and have never heard it. Uh, that would be my guess. And, um, there, you know, the, the, the feeling of the church and the document is that everybody with the whole church would recognize uh, the Latin, for example, certain parts being the Agnus Dei or the Sanctus, etc. So um, that's basically what I came up with uh, there. It doesn't happen in every church. Believe me, I go to a couple of different parishes and there are some parishes, there's one parish in particular where I am hard pressed to hear anything ever sung in Latin. Um, I know that with children's choirs, for example, um, it's a very good idea to teach them Latin for several reasons, and they like it. They really like it. Um, so, um, again, it depends on the parish, the culture of the parish, the, um, the um, knowledge of the music director, etc. Um, so yes, we are, to really answer the question, we are seeing uh, more of that in many places. So that, I hopefully that makes sense. Is it the decision of the music director? Well, or the decision of the pastor? Well, it, it, it depends. In parishes where <laughs> Aldemar knows, because he was a music director, is a music director. Yes. Uh, you can certainly uh, add to it, but in my experience, I mean, my husband's a music director. If you have a music director that is knowledgeable of the liturgy and sacred music, they are hired that the pastor would trust their decision because they would know more about choosing music uh, settings of mass parts and choosing of hymns than the pastor would know. We have it every day in our 8 a.m., our televised mass at the COVID. Yeah. It's sung all yeah. day. Yeah. Aldemar, would you add anything to that or you'd agree? Yes. Unfortunately, it does depend. It varies. From, I've worked in several parishes. There's always been a different experience. And unfortunately, I have a lot of folks who are music directors who are excellent musicians, but they're not Catholic. So everything is foreign to them. And the parish only receives what they can manage to squeeze into the program. But I've had pastors who insist on Latin, and I've had pastors who forbid it. In fact, I recently stopped at a church where they didn't even do a responsorial song. They chose a song that they liked instead. So oh my the, the answer is it really depends, better or worse. Still <laughs> <Feel> my heart. <laughs> I almost walked out. Yeah. Uh, they, they need to read the document saying that nobody, not even the priest, has a right to change anything. Rob. Well, the uh, Trinity, uh, which is in Georgetown, in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. oh, every, yes. yeah, every Sunday evening does the Mass in Latin. Mm -hmm. But they use the modern Mass. Right. In but they Latin. say it in Latin. Right. Yeah. And they don't need anybody's approval for that. Right. No. Right. It's not the extraordinary form. Right. It's the ordinary form, but in Latin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They've got quite a following. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're going to definitely dedicate a whole session to that whole, I just bought a book that's hot off the press. And it's like the war. It's, 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 it's there's something about war in the title. 
I don't know. I just got it. It just came. I haven't even looked at it, but I thought it might be a good resource uh, for that. Um, so yeah, that is an issue. And with musicians uh, in particular, you know, in our churches, we should have pastoral musicians, not just good musicians. And that's why in the Archdiocese of New York, we have the St. Cecilia Academy to take people who went to like Juilliard and are great musicians, but have no idea about hymnody or uh, mass settings and things like that to try to train them to be what we call a pastoral musician. Um, it's really important to be an excellent musician, but also, you know, um, a good pastoral musician as well, so that you know how to choose um, hymns. And, you know, um, we're, we're in a time in our church where staffs are small and uh, money is tight and we don't always uh, have the means to hire somebody to do this. So, so it's very hard. It's harder to to abide by this wonderful vision of the church that would um, allow for having experts in their fields, um, and that's kind of a sad thing. I, 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 it's my hope and dream that we can get beyond that, that we can have experts in pastoral music, experts in catechesis being hired in our parishes um, so that thing we can do all ministry, particularly the liturgy, um, we can be doing it according to the vision of the church. That That is so important. So our goal here is to know what the vision of the church is ideally. So when you we're out in parishes, you know, not again that we're critics of everything, but that, but that we know how it should be, and we can contribute in whatever way we can to hopefully eventually getting to that point. So just by way of an example, um, I go to two different churches. One is close to my house. My parish that I belong to is a little further. But in one, we have a skilled musician who is also a pastoral musician. And everything is done exactly the way it should be to the utmost beauty. And that's what the church calls for, you know? The other church where I go with all due respect, it's an observation, you know, there's a couple of volunteers and they're picking hymns that are not the greatest at all. Um, you know, and it's just like you kind of, uh, I'm to the point in my life where I'm not critical anymore, and I say, this is mass, no matter what, you know. Um, however, there's, there is a difference in the, the whole um, environment, the transcendence, the prayer, there's a difference. So, I mean, when you look at documents like, you know, um, Sing to the Lord, which we'll get to, we'll talk about art and environment and stuff like that. Everything matters for it to all come together appropriately. But anyway, that's a long way of answering the question. And I, I apologize for that, but hopefully you learned something from, from the response. The other question had to do with um, confirmation, you know, um, and then I promise we'll get to our prayer and to our topic tonight. But um, <clears throat> we talked about sacraments last week. And so I appreciate the questions coming in, 
But, you know, that we know that the bishop is what we would call the ordinary minister of confirmation, right? However, there are certain cases where a pastor or a priest may confirm, all right? So the first is when you look at the, and we will look at it in a couple of weeks, the rite of Christian initiation of adults, uh, when an unbaptized person, hopefully at the Easter vigil, is baptized, the, whoever is the celebrant of the Easter vigil must confirm them. So whether it's the pastor or a parish priest, they would confirm. And that is automatic. No permission is needed. That can be done. So for the unbaptized. Then you have another category. You have people who are validly baptized in another ecclesial community, so Lutheran, let's say, Episcopal. And they are coming into the full communion of the Catholic Church. Um, they make a profession of faith, and conf then confirmation is celebrated. A priest can confirm them. No permission needed. Okay, follow? All right. Then the other category is Catholics who are baptized as infants or children, and then as adults are being confirmed. Um, on Pent most dioceses have given the permission, what's called an indult, for Pentecost. So in other words, the pastor wouldn't have to write to the bishop's office for permission. But if he chooses to do it at another time, he must get permission to confirm a baptized Catholic. Make sense? Okay. So I, I think that answers the question in a comprehensive way, all right? So keep sending your questions. It tells me you're thinking. It's great. And feel free to ask questions as well. So to move on with our, we're on schedule, and we'll see if we can stay that way with our, um, how are you? We really didn't get to our lesson yet. We were answering questions, but just tell me, you got your midterm back? Yes, no, where did well, I it? I sent it to you in an email. I did, I looked. I'm you sure. did look, all right. Yeah. Um, that's what I want to know, so I'll make sure I resend it. Okay. So I, you know, check your, um, <clears throat> check your spam as well, because I send it through Populi. Oh, so it doesn't come from John at that extra no. hour? Oh, that's why. Okay. So yeah. look under Populi. Because I don't know how what it looks like, but I just go through the, I click on your name and Populi and I can send an email. It's just a lot easier, but that's why i checking. Okay. That's so if it's coming from Populi, I'm sure it's in there. Let, but let me know. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So we're going to be talking about liturgy and time tonight, but before we do that, let, let we need to pray. My goodness, right? Huh? Yeah, you didn't miss the prayer. So, um, you know, I put the I put the um, the notes in files as I normally do, but it was a little later last night uh, when I got the PowerPoint uh, finished. So I sent it. Uh, it was probably after nine o'clock. I finally was able to send it. 
But anyway, you know, we come together. I think we've already forgotten about what we left behind because we've been talking about liturgy for the past almost half hour, uh, 20 minutes or so. But um, what I did for the prayer, um, this is the prayer after communion uh, from All Saints Day. And I have to say, when I heard it being prayed on Monday, I thought of you all particularly Carlos, I thought of you because some of uh, you, some of the, your questions that you've brought up. So we're, I decided to use this uh, for our prayer tonight and uh, it'll also make a little bit of connection of what we're going to be talking about tonight as well. So as we come together and I'm happy to be out here in Huntington with you all, this is great. Um, I miss you all there in the classroom, though. <laughs> um, but anyway, we come together with great joy. So let us pray. As we adore you, O God, who alone are holy and wonderful in all your saints, we implore your grace so that coming to perfect holiness in the fullness of your love, we may pass from this pilgrim table to the banquet of our heavenly homeland. Through Christ our Lord, amen. amen. So what prompted me to choose this prayer was what we talked about, and it'll come up again tonight, but regarding, you know, the liturgy being, you know, a foretaste of heaven. You know, and that we're looking forward to the heavenly liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what made me think of it when I heard this prayer prayed on Monday, uh, that we may pass from this pilgrim table to the banquet of your heavenly homeland. I just thought that was so beautiful, and it really does. Um, you know, that's exactly what we're, we're talking about here. So anyway, usually I try to pick from the day, but I went back a couple of days. So anyway, our outline for tonight, uh, and I hope you all noticed that, that on the PowerPoints, I was able to make the numbers a little bigger. I figured it out. <laughs> Took me uh, how many weeks, but I figured it out. So they are a little bigger. Uh, and I can even make them bigger next time if you want, now that I know how to do it. But anyway, our outline, as you see, hopefully you have your notes with you or on your computer. Uh, we're looking at liturgy and time tonight. And so we'll be looking at two specific things, the liturgical year. Um, and again, we're skimming the surface. If you're really interested in this topic this summer, there'll be an elective offered by Father Matthew Ernest that will really delve deeply into this, um, into the liturgical year. And then we'll look uh, at the Liturgy of the Hours briefly, okay? So that's, that's the plan uh so far uh that i hope we'll, we can get through uh but i think uh, these are liturgical year is one of my favorite things to to talk about but before we get to the liturgical year we just have to look a little bit at liturgy and time how we look at time when we're uh looking at the liturgy so first of all just time in general right so it's a human challenge, all right? It right? Because I think every one of us would say we don't have enough of it. <laughs> so 
because we exist in uh, time and space. Um, you know, there never seems to be enough time. And I'll tell you, when I do the uh, seminar, and Jackie is in that seminar, so she knows, when we talk about people writing their thesis, I always say to them, what's, what's your obstacle? Every, for seven years, people tell me time. Time is their, always their obstacle when they're, they're writing, you know? Um, but um, so we have to accept the fact that we live in time and we live in space. So it, it's a human challenge. And it's often, it's out of our control. The clock keeps moving, you know, when we've got so many things to do, no matter what, the clock keeps moving. And hence, we don't have enough time most of the time. Um, so we need to fit into this rhythm of nature. So we fit into this 24 hours of a day and we need time for rest and we need time for work and we need time for play and all of that, right? Um, calendars are a big help. Uh, everybody has a calendar, whether it's on your phone, on your computer, paper. Um, we all have calendars to try to keep us to we use that expression, manage time. You know, time management, there are seminars on this, managing time. And it's almost ridiculous because we can't, we can't manage time, you know, it's, we really can't, uh, but you know, they use, they use that expression, time management. And the most we can do is uh, prioritize what we have to do, right? And I'm just talking in general about time, but it's important to understand that because when we talk about the liturgy, we say, and you've heard me say it before, liturgy is meant to be timeless, you know? But, you know, uh, what is the, you know, everybody wants, you know, it's an hour. And if it's more than an hour, people are like, we talked about this a few weeks ago, if there's a baptism at mass or a first communion, you know, it's going to take you beyond the hour or the 50 minutes kind of a thing. But uh, what we're going to look at is what time means for the liturgy, because indeed liturgy needs to be timeless. All right. Um, so we, we have to think outside of this human challenge, this existing in time and space, and this time that's somewhat out of our control. So when we're looking at liturgy, we're looking at time in a very different way. We're looking at sacred time, which is to me just a beautiful thing to know that we have this alternative to our everyday existence. And basically here, we're looking at God's time. And, you know, God's time is often very slow, <laughs> you know, um, but that's, it's beyond reality, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. And we have to learn to trust that God's time is timeless. As I said, the liturgy is timeless. Well, God's time is timeless. All right. In other words, God exists outside of time, right? 
time the way we just looked at it on the first slide, right? So what we're getting at here is that there is a Christian way of understanding time. This could be very freeing and wonderful, I think. And so this Christian or religious way of articulating time is reflective of who God is, all right? Um, as I said before, we do try to tame time in a way by using a calendar. And so it's, in a sense, no different in the church that we set up. We have a liturgical calendar that we follow. All right, I'm just introducing this idea here. But the whole idea of the liturgical calendar or the liturgical year is a human development. It was a creation of the Christian community. And it, as you'll see in a, a little later tonight, it, it was a gradual um, development, but it was an attempt to try to conquer time in a way and to try to take our Christian way of life and our way of looking at time and putting it in some kind of order, like we do everything, <laughs> right? All right. So, but there's always a but. God, when we're talking about God uh, being timeless, for example, and God's time, sacred time, God is an eternal mystery that exists outside of time, right? Um, and, you know, it made me think very often in the gospel, we'll hear the phrase at that time, right? We hear that very often, you know? And, you know, at that time is really sacred time, God's time, uh, that the message is, is brought to us into our time that is so confined. You know, and that's God entering into our time when we, for example, hear the scripture proclaimed. But we often just hear that expression at that time. So be aware of that when you're reading your scripture. But the thing about what we're going to be looking at tonight, when we look at the liturgical year, how the church looks at time, right? That the church has common times that remind us of who we are. That's gonna be something that I wanna emphasize here. Somewhat about identity we're going to be talking about. So let me give you an example of what I mean here. And I think the best example is Lent, right? Uh, Lent is a common time that the church is looking at, for example, conversion, right? That we're all preparing for Easter, all right? But it's, it doesn't mean that today, during the, you know, the 35th week of ordinary time, I can be thinking about conversion. You can be thinking about conversion. But during Lent, it's specific that we're all going to be thinking about it together as the church. So that's, you know, one of the things that the church has set up common times that we have a particular focus. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right? Uh, all right, so, and this, this whole idea of these common times that we'll look at in a few minutes, reminding us 
who we are. This is, it provides us, I maintain, the liturgical calendar, the liturgical year, which we'll look at, really helps us to form our identity as Catholic Christians. And it's a very important thing to make people aware of, all right? Now, in my own personal experience in the parish, okay, when I was in my pastoral roles, people I discovered had very little knowledge of the liturgical calendar. It was, and it, you know, it was so much a part of who I am that I really had to, had to gradually introduce people. And I'm talking about kids, parents, teachers in Catholic schools, catechists, you name it. We had to start from scratch. And I had to teach people about the liturgical year. And whenever I did, and I think I might have mentioned this before, the majority of the people would say, I never learned that. I one year, in my last parish where I worked, there was one year I had an intern, a young woman who was going uh, to Boston College to study. And they accepted her on a full scholarship, but she had no pastoral experience. So they said, you have to, you have to get some pastoral experience. So we hired her to be an intern with me. And I remember doing a parent meeting and doing a session on the liturgical year for the parents. And when it was over, she came up to me and she said to me, I went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school and Catholic college. And she said, I never heard anything what you said tonight. That's a tragedy. <laughs> that really is. So I made it really a mission in my pastoral work to, to set a high priority to make sure that it was not the null curriculum in catechesis or adult faith formation that people needed to understand this liturgical year, all right? So much so, I was so passionate. When I chose my doctoral research, I chose to do it on the Paschal Triduum. All right, and I wanted to really drive home this point, but nobody knows what the Triduum is, but nobody knows what the whole calendar is. And I remember a very good friend of mine in mass every Sunday, you know, very like faith-filled Roman Catholic woman. And she said, what are you writing your dissertation on? And I said, the Paxel or the Easter Triduum, I broke it down. She said, what is that? You see, so we have a problem here for not everybody, but the majority in my experience. So this is a, a really important topic uh, that we need to keep, um, we need to keep it in the forefront of our knowledge and then for, um, for our pastoral or schoolwork, whatever the case may be, anywhere we are, that we have a chance to introduce people to the feasts and seasons of the church year we need to do. And sometimes when we talk about Advent in a little while, sometimes we need to do it in our own families, believe me, <laughs> as well, you know? But anyway, I don't wanna to digress too much, but I, I'm, I'm hoping to make some important points here. Um, just going back to this whole idea, the time in the liturgy, 
I pulled out this quote from uh, the Marty Mort book <clears throat> that's not required for you, but it is on your, um, actually this particular one, volume four, Liturgy and Time is not on your recommended reading, but the other one, Principles of Liturgy is. Uh, these are not easy reads. They're okay. I know you have some of them, right? But anyway, he makes a good point here where he says, any organization of the liturgy must inevitably be related in complex ways to the various cosmic cycles that determine the rhythm of existence in time. The necessary relationship arises in part because of the significance attached to the flow of time and to those opportune moments in it that are regarded as especially important. In other words, what he's getting at here, there's a theology of time, all right? And that's what's relating it to the liturgy. And what I said before, that there's a Christian way of looking at time. So, for example, and I, I'm on, if you're following with your slides, I'm like on slide eight. What we're getting at here is we're looking at the liturgy and the time of salvation. You see that there is a theology of time here. So for the Israelites, for example, time is linear. Um, they would look at time as before creation and then the day of the Lord. And that that's kind of, in, in a nutshell, the way the Israelites looked at time. But for Christians, time is more circular. Now, I was reading one resource that said circular, yes, but the author, and I can't remember which book it was, um, said he preferred a spiral, all right? A spiral, because it just keeps going around and around and around and around and around, all right? So the idea here with the this idea of a theology of time, looking at it from a Christian point of view, that in Christ, time is given a new direction. So, for example, we all know that Jesus, with his disciples, his primary message was the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's now. See? Where the Israelites were waiting for this. And Jesus is saying, it's here. So that's a whole different perspective. And that's what we're somewhat getting at here, all right? And looking again at time through this Christian lens, it's the resurrection that is the decisive event. It, it's being the outcome of all that went before and the explanation of what will follow. So it's really Jesus, what he said and what he did that changes everything about how we look at time, okay? Some of this I know sounds a little abstract, I think, but um, the point here is that 
the meaning of history is changed. Historical time takes us in a new direction and it gives us a whole new world view that we look at everything. Um, the goal, I think, is to look at everything in that lens of what we talked about before, God's time, sacred time. And that's what the liturgy does for us, as we will see. It's not always easy, but we need to be mindful of it, think about it, and particularly when we're participating in the celebration of the liturgy. And hopefully by 9.30 tonight, this will all make sense. Are you with me so far? Good, we have time. <laughs> I know last week was what, like 9.35. All right, you good? Thumbs up, everybody? In the classroom? Look at that. Look at that class. Wow. So this time of the church, all right, we could say begins at Pentecost. Right? Because in Pentecost, the words of the catechism, the church is made manifest. You know, the birthday of the church, so to speak. Right? And this is the reason, according to Marty Mart, I'm using this Liturgy and Time book again. This is the reason why every liturgy has an epiclesis. Now, we talked about that before, meaning a plea that the spirit may descend upon the ecclesial assembly and make known the mysteries of the kingdom. All right. And what he's getting at here, he's talking about the mystery of time, the mysteries of the kingdom, the mystery of time. The kingdom is in your midst. Now, Jesus said it 2000 years ago, and we're saying it now. The kingdom of God is in your midst now. Liturgically, I'll unfold that for you in a minute. So this mystery of time, okay, that's very much related to the liturgy, I promise, is that Christ is at once present and absent. All right, that's a mystery, all right? And we're going to see that when we talk about time and the liturgy um, and what that means, okay? All right. So, and this is the next thing I'm going to say is very much connected to um, a question that came up a few weeks ago um, and to uh, the prayer for All Saints Day that I chose for tonight. Because the time of the church is eschatological. In other words, it's looking toward heaven. The time of the church, we're looking at heaven, right? But we're in the real world here, right? We're on earth. So we're, it's also historical where the work of creation is uh, what is recapitulated or repeated and revelation is remembered. Now that's, that's important because we have to keep in mind Going back to our history in the early church, for the Jewish people to remember, does anybody remember <laughs> what that means? Bill. To make it present. To make it present now. So for example, for the Jewish people celebrating Passover to this day is 
needs to make the Exodus event real, present for them now. And that's what we do in liturgy, right? So that's, that's very important to remember that, all right? Um, and the early church, if you remember, focused its worship on the celebration of the Lord's Supper, right? Where Christ is present in the midst of his disciples. Well, that's exactly what we're doing now. We're remembering that and we are making it present in time here, okay? So liturgy is anticipating the eschatological fulfillment and proclaims the mystery of salvation, the heavenly banquet, always looking toward heaven. So in other words, you could say nothing, heaven matters, nothing matters, heaven matters. I, there's a beautiful statement, and I love this. My daughter-in-law actually brought it to my attention. You know, parents uh, are very eager to, uh, she was actually reading something, and maybe you heard this before, where parents with even small children, their whole goal in life is, and one parent was saying, to get my child into Harvard. And another parent said, my goal is to get my child to heaven. That's a beautiful thing. When we can look at life that way. You know, and that's, I was so proud that that struck my daughter-in-law for my grandchildren. Yeah, rather, I want them to, you know, that all of life is that, is looking toward heaven in everything that we are doing. You know, even if it means going to Harvard. You know, I'm not putting that down, but you get, you get my drift here, right? We've, good education is a good thing, but the goal has to be heaven. And so in other words, nothing really else matters. Um, and that's what we do. That's why liturgy is timeless. And we can't be looking at our watches. We should never be looking at our watches when we're at mass or any other kind of liturgical prayer. And again, I know some of this is abstract, but I think I hope it'll make sense to you uh, when we move on. So um, documents I, I want to talk about. But you see here on, the, on your notes, uh, and on the, we had a PowerPoint here. It's a nice color on page 11. You have a nice little diagram of the liturgical year. You know, nothing is filled in. It's a blank one, but um, you can buy, you can purchase these all filled in every year. Uh, they are available. Um, I used to keep one hanging in my office all the time. Uh, I would I had a frame made, and every year I'd just change it. But um, we're going to be referring to this. But this is an important visual for people. I used to buy small ones in the parish and send them home with families and tell parents to, you know how parents put things on the refrigerator? Put this on your refrigerator and make sure every day your child, you and your child know what every day is, particularly Sundays, particularly Sundays. That was my, really my goal to just make the liturgical year as common for people as a regular calendar that I just wanted it etched into their lives. But anyway, two documents where we uh, we learn the church's vision of this idea of the church's time. Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which we're still looking at, uh, chapter five in particular is called 
the liturgical year, okay? And then there's another document, and it, um, I'm sure you can find it online, but it's also in this uh, volume that I showed you a few weeks ago, the liturgy documents. It's a four-volume set, but this is volume one, and it's also in there, but it's called Universal Norms on the Liturgical Year and the General Roman Calendar. We need to know the resources. If there's nothing else that you learn in this class, I, I want you to know the resources. Where do you go to find out these things? That you know the, the documents first and foremost and then some good commentaries. But it can make all the difference of the world. And I was thinking, and I remember when I was an MA student right here in this building, one of the most valuable things that I got from the four years I spent here studying was that I, I learned how to find resources. And that, that's an important thing. Uh, so I really do try in every class to introduce you to resources. So these are the two that have to do, two documents that have to do with liturgy and time. All right, and this is page 11 on your um, slides. You good, you with me? Mm -hmm. So, uh, first of all, on the next two slides, we're going to look at uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the sacred liturgy, uh, constitution on the sacred liturgy, and what it says in chapter five, okay? So it's kind of a long quote, and it's on two slides, but I'm gonna break it down for you. I don't wanna make it uh, boring. I want to make it exciting, <laughs> All right? Please, if I get boring, just tell me to stop, <laughs> you know? But it says, and this is quoting from paragraph 102 in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. The church is conscious that it must celebrate the saving work of the divine bridegroom by devoutly recalling it on certain days throughout the course of the year. You see how that's referring to time and calendar. First of all, I want to call your attention to the word celebrate, right? And we've said that a few times. In liturgy, we celebrate, right? The church celebrates. So here it's telling us it must celebrate this saving work of God, right? Uh, our salvation. We have to celebrate it because it's it happened and it's happening now, right? But we do it by recalling it on certain days throughout the year. And we'll, we'll look at that and we'll flesh it out. In other words, this, particularly through the seasons of the church year. So then it goes on to say, first of all, every week on the day which the church has called the Lord's Day, it keeps the memory of the Lord's resurrection, okay? Which it also celebrates once a year, together with his blessed passion and the most solemn feast of Easter, all right? So basically it's saying that first we recall it every week by looking at Sunday, okay? And then it's saying we recall it once a year at Easter. All right, and a little while I'm going to explain to you how that came about. 
But initially, Sunday was the, the first feast day that we ever had. Go walk around. I'm I know. I know. Don't worry. Just go ahead. Walk. All right. So it's very interesting, as you will see, that first it talks about the week, right? And then it talks about the year. Okay? So this whole idea of memory and recalling it on certain days. In other words, we are remembering, right? Or this mystery of salvation. Um, we're celebrating it in time, in our time, okay? For today. What you're hearing is the heat going on here in Huntington. <laughs> I thought it was Deacon walking. Deacon Rob, God love him, he traveled down from heat skill to be here in person tonight, but sitting so long, he, he has some cramp, leg cramping, so we're just letting him walk around. That's okay. <laughs> I'm used to that because my husband gets that, and sometimes he just jumps out of a chair or jumps out of bed. But, and I just totally ignore him. So, so I just ignore my husband as I'm ignoring you as well. Oh, that's, <laughs> and, nice. that's all right. It's <laughs> oh, funny. Um, so anyway, um, continuing with this exact same paragraph, it goes on to say, so just go back to what I just read. It took you the week, the year. Now it's telling us within the cycle of a year, moreover, the church unfolds the whole mystery of Christ. From his incarnation and birth until his ascension, the day of Pentecost, and the expectation of blessed hope of the Lord's return. This is what I meant before when I said so that the liturgical year is about our identity. We can learn an awful lot about our Catholic Christian identity by knowing the liturgical year. Because the church, as it says here, and I'm quoting, unfolds the whole mystery of Christ through this cycle of the church year. I, th I just think that's an amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing to contemplate every day as you'll see when we look at the hours every week every every season it's beautiful then it goes on to say how do they come yeah. up with the a b and c cycles oh oh that's uh there used to be, if you heard the question, A, B, and C cycles. And before the reform, there was one cycle. I think I might have mentioned that last time. And with the reform of the liturgy, uh, they um, divided the readings of the Bible, basically, scripture, into three cycles using uh, different gospels for each, right? And then John on particular seasons or feasts. But that was to give us a broader um, a view of scripture because scripture with the reforms of Vatican II became very important because we, we really didn't put a lot of emphasis on scripture. Plus, they, all the scripture readings were read in Latin uh, prior to the reform. So they came up with uh, the three cycles so that essentially, if you're like me and you use the lectionary as your prayer book every day, 
in three years you've read a good portion of the Bible, pretty much. Look at it that way. But I, you, I, you know, like somebody once asked me, do you read the Bible? And at first I said, well, no, but yeah, I do, because I read the lectionary every single day, the readings of the day. So by the end of three years, I've read a good part of the Bible, you know, but I like to be, because I'm, I think liturgically, I pray liturgically, so I like to be very much in tune with the readings of the day. It's the first thing I do every day, okay? Aldemar. I have a related question. If the, the readings for Sundays follow a three-year cycle, why is the read, why are the readings for weekday masses following a two-year cycle? Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't really know the answer to that, but I'll find out. <laughs> you know, because uh, when we talk about the Roman Missal, I definitely want to include talking about the lectionary. Uh, yeah, but it's true. There's a three-year cycle for Sunday and only a two-year cycle. And I always get confused, I have to be honest. Are we in one, two, you know, with the weekdays, right? I always have to check, you know? So that's an excellent question, and I'm not exactly sure. It's a mystery. It, it's a mystery, but it's really not. There was probably a, a method to it. But I, I'll, I'll definitely incorporate. I'm a process per, kind of a person. I'll, I'll incorporate it into when we talk about the Roman Missal. <coughs> Is that all right? That's Good. perfect. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yes. This liturgical calendar for the whole year start. I know the early church celebrated like these days of the martyrs and stuff. I mean, they didn't jump in the gun with the question. A little bit, that. but that's okay. Yes. Yes. When, when did it start? Like the first formal, here's the whole liturgical calendar for the year. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't develop that way, as you will see. It didn't develop all at once. It was a gradual development that started with a day, and then it gradually started. Yeah. So it was. It happened early on because the important thing to ha to recognize is that. And again, you you all know the Metzger book backwards and forwards. I know that, but the history. You know, remember we said, to understand the present, you have to know the past, or at least in broad strokes. But the Jewish people had a cycle of feasts and seasons, and we inherited that. So it wasn't like some Christian had to, you know, uh, draw blueprints for this. It was adopted um, gradually. Uh, starting with the day of the resurrection. But that, that is a great question. And you'll see, I'm going to go through how it developed. And I think some of you might be a little surprised of how it developed. I don't know. But maybe you, you know all this already. But yeah, but basically it was inherited and then gradually as, as the Christian mystery became clearer, um, it started to develop. Yeah. All right. So this last portion of this uh, paragraph 102 is, I think, really important. Recalling thus the mysteries of redemption, the church opens to the faithful the riches of the Lord's powers and merits so that these are in some way made present in every age 
in order that the faithful may hold on them and be filled with saving grace. I, emphasis added, made present that the mysteries of our redemption right, are made in and through the liturgy. Right? We, we got to remember, we're talking about liturgy here. That's our focus. But are made present for us now. And as it says, in every age. So what you and I, what we celebrate, we, we can think back to any saint we want to. The same mysteries were made present to them. To me, that, that's a pretty awesome thing. You know, I think of Padre Pio or Mother Teresa or whatever, you know, these same mysteries celebrated and made present uh, to them and to you and to me. So, I mean, this, again, this is from the document on the, on the liturgy and it is uh, this chapter five, uh, getting at this whole idea of this uh, calendar, liturgical year and how we are remembering what happened once in the past, but we make it present for us now. I think that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, the, uh, let me just check the time. All right, we'll go a little longer and then I'll give you a break. The other document that I mentioned before, Universal Norms on the Liturgical Year and General Roman Calendar. This is from 1969, but it was actually not put in use until 1970. All right, things, you know, after the Second Vatican Council, remember things gradually. The, do the, the documents came out from the council and then these post-conciliar documents um were put together that were built on uh, the original 16 documents so this one particularly is built on that chapter five in sacrosanctum concilium that well we need to say more about the liturgical year so what i did here on uh up to slide 14 i just gave you an outline of what you would find in this document i have found this very useful and helpful uh, just sometimes in teaching it it helps to to quote documents it protects you it gives you a rationale well this is what the church says about this so in this document you'll find uh in the first 47 paragraphs and it's a short document it's only like 60 some odd uh, paragraphs, but the, the liturgical year. And under that, you'll find the liturgical days. You'll find a section on Sunday, all right? Then solemnities, feasts, and memorials. Now, um, you know, oh, here. Every day that we celebrate um, a particular saint, for example, Sometimes it's a feast, sometimes it's a memorial, and sometimes it's a solemnity. Now, I have my handy little Magnificat, right? And here it is, all listed. So sometimes in my mind, I'm thinking, is it a feast day? Is it a solemnity? But it, it, it's, it's almost like a um, hierarchical order, you know? Sometimes, like today, right, is the a memorial of Martin de Porres. 
right? So we're remembering, right? We have the solemnity of all saints on Monday, right? So these are things that are good to know. Um, and sometimes, I, I can't remember now, sometimes, uh, and recently, but I can't remember, Pope Francis, I think it was Mary Magdalene, sometimes it moves from a feast to a solemnity. Anybody remember that? I want to say, I can't remember, but I'll... It was this year, though, right? It was this year, yeah, I think. In September, I think. Yeah, I'll double check it, but I vaguely remember that, that it, it was just, it just gave it a higher... Yeah, he did it. He did it in July, but it was to be effective in August it's or September. something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just occurred to me now. But anyway, this document will will explain all that for you. Then it, it talks about the cycle of the year, which we'll talk about uh, later on tonight. And then here is what I was thinking when he asked the question. Then it breaks it down, and this is the order that it breaks it. Now, the Paschal Triduum, Easter time, Lent, Christmas time, Advent, and ordinary time. So when you look at this document and it gives you the order, what's like different about it? If you know anything about the liturgical year, when do you start? Ordinary times between Lent and Advent. Who is that? Who is that? Ordinary time oh. is just split. Yeah, Bob. Between yeah, but what do you and notice? And what do you notice about the order that this document? It starts with two. Yeah, Bill just said the liturgical year starts in Advent. Advent. Right. Yeah. We're coming up to it. The first su Sunday, the new liturgical year, we'll be going into cycle C. Right. But the interesting thing in this document, it doesn't start with Advent. Can anybody guess why? Well, yeah, thank you for that. That's a good one. But it also was the beginning of the development. It didn't start, the, the development of the liturgical year did not start with Advent. We have it arranged that way now it's July 22nd is it because of what we borrowed from the Jewish tradition yes it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah the Passover the Pash and I always say that wrong but whatever it is the meaning the Passover Easter was the day of the resurrection yeah that's exactly right and, and, and I'm going to go back to that idea, but I just, in relation to Harrison's question, how did it develop? You know, we have this nice, neat diagram that you all have a couple of times, inserted it a couple of times on your slides. I want it etched in your brains, but it starts with Advent, but it didn't start with Advent. You know, it started with Easter. And you'll, you'll understand before tonight is over, that it's the Paschal Triduum, which is the Easter Triduum, is where it starts. All right? And then we have Easter time. And notice the, the language that we're using is also the language in the Roman Missal. When we look at that, you know, we're so used to saying the Easter season, but the Roman Missal in this document uses 
Easter time, Christmas time. Notice that I, the word time, we spent, we started talking about time, right? So it's the way the church is looking at time, Easter time. And, and again, I'm going to go back to this. Right now, I'm just kind of setting up what you'd find in this resource, okay? So, so this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, document that just spells it out. So if ever you were teaching, using it, you want to teach somebody about the liturgical year, go to this document. You have all the information you need right there. You need to go no further. It's, it's all there. Then this chapter two of the document is the count talks about the calendar. And by the calendar, it's talking about, you know, uh, what I was referring to in here, where it lists every day. And some days it's just, you know, a weekday in ordinary time or in Lent or in Advent. But some days there are particular saints, like today, Martin de Porres. And that's what it's talking about. The calendar and celebrations that are uh, inscribed in it. Uh, a proper, the proper day for celebration. And then it has this table of liturgical days according to their order of precedence. And just as a rule of thumb, what you'll find in that section is Sunday always takes precedence. So when it's Sunday and it happens to be a saint's day, Sunday takes precedence that we don't really celebrate that saint. Is that why they did All Saints Day this year? But that, that was not Holy Day of Obligation. But it was, that was Monday. That was Monday. Right. Right? So, I don't know. The <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you for like, bringing that up. This is the most confusing thing that we've done in the church mm -hmm. with Holy Days of Obligation. I actually, I'll be, I used to keep a chart in my calendar on my desk when I worked in the parish. So when people call and ask, but they made this thing that if it falls on a Monday, for example, and, or, Saturday. or Saturday, yes, that it's, and people use the wrong language. They say, well, it's not a holy day. Well, that's the wrong language. It is a holy day, but it's not an obligation. Meaning if you don't go to mass on that day, you're not under, you know, uh, sin. The thing about it is All Saints Day is a holy day, no matter if it was on a Monday, but it wasn't an obligation. To me, I'm sorry, it's, it's ridiculous. That's nuts. It is it's nuts. Than that. It, it, it's really silly. To me, it's silly. There's but, still a holy day of obligation. <laughs> I mean, I know what it says. But... I know, but this is, the church came up with this about over 20 years ago. And maybe it's it's the same thing like, you know, they relax uh, the whole idea of eating meat, not eating meat on Friday. But the church really never, they didn't mean that um, to, to take it away, that, but they took away that if you eat meat on Friday, it's not a sin. But as we're going to go on, every Friday should be a good Friday when we celebrate the mystery within the week. And we should be remembering the Lord's passion and death on Friday. And that was the reason why, when I was growing up, we couldn't eat meat on Friday. The problem was nobody knew that. So I think with these holy days that the church wanted to relax that, but it is silly. To me, it's silly that 
and people are using the wrong language. Like for example, oh, it's not a holy day this year. Well, it's a holy day every year. All Saints is a holy day every year, but if it's on a Monday or a Saturday, it's not of obligation. Very confusing, right? Because you probably heard it in the church announcements. I know we did, but in the one church that I went to last week, they had mass. They had mass Sunday night for Monday, and they had a Monday morning mass and a Monday afternoon. I thought that was great, you know, that they they did say it's not an obligation, but they were we celebrating it because it's a huge, beautiful. And it's actually between Halloween and yesterday, or Souls Day, it's like a triduum, mm -hmm. you know, a real religious tradition for three days, you know, and nobody knows that. So you Halloween know? is a religious tradition? <laughs> All Hallows Eve. All Hallows Eve, the Eve of All Saints Day. Teach, we got to teach that to children because Halloween has becoming somewhat Pagan, I hate to say, totally. when it is so really traditionally religious, you know, the Eve of all saints, and you know, and then all souls. It's like a beautiful, <coughs> has the potential to be a beautiful, beautiful thing, but we need to teach, especially, we just need to teach everybody about this awareness. I'm all for in our bulletins, websites, and parishes to have a little column. Did you know? Did you know? A couple of sentences. People might learn something. You good? Yes, Carlos. A sacrosanctum concilium. I have a question that in uh, like uh, number 106, it says something about the eighth day that uh, the church celebrates the Paschal mystery every eighth day. I was wondering, like, what's the eighth day? Sunday. Sunday. Eighth? The eighth day, Sunday is often referred to as the first day of the week or the eighth day of the week. <laughs> For the last time, I can't only said It's a holy day of obligation. It is a holy day of obligation, no exceptions. Yeah, in... Um, I'm I know. It means that it's what we're... Uh, it's, it's beyond, it's greater. And that in, uh, in the ancient world, eight meant more. What? No, no, no. It just means that it's grander. So very, we'll see it referred to as the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, or the eighth day, which there isn't an eighth day, but it means that it's beyond this time of our seven-day week. It's that great. You know, when we talk about Sunday tonight, and again, I'm doing this in broad strokes, because this is a whole course, the liturgical year, as I said, will be offered in the summer. But for most people, Sunday is the weekend. It's lost what it is. And we, it's sad to say, but we need to remind people about Sunday of, and what it is and what it means. Um, because for most people, oh, it's the weekend not the Lord's Day, but it is the Lord's Day. And and we've, we've just lost a sense of that, that beauty of it being the Lord's Day, uh, you know, a day of, uh, and I'm totally guilty of it, it's the day I do my laundry. <laughs> it, to me, it'd be so wonderful to really Sabbath 
on that day. You know, even, you know, and, you know, we have vigil mass on Saturday night, uh, which I often go to. But in one sense, and this was something after the Vatican Council, we never had that before. And it fits in with how we look at time, particularly from our, our Jewish uh, ancestors that we celebrate, we start celebrating the Sabbath the day before. Uh, that's why it has to be a certain time. It can't be at two o'clock in the afternoon. It has to be later. But um, by doing that, what have we done to Sunday? I mean, I know people, and this is an observation, that go to Mass every day of the week, but not on Sunday, because they go on Saturday night Mass. You know, and, and I admit some days, sometimes I'm guilty of that because of time constraints. But I always feel badly about it, and I don't like it. But anyway, I, I digress. But uh, anyway, we're Do, going... Dr. Eschenauer, just yeah. um, when you're saying that someone goes on Saturday evening, but then they don't go on Sunday, is there a um, uh, restriction or a recommendation on that as to how many um, times you can go to Mass for Sunday? You can go twice. You can receive communion twice at two separate liturgies. You, you could. So you could theoretically go on Saturday night and go again on Sunday. You could. Yeah. But I just want to be clear, if you go to Mass on Saturday night, it is for Sunday. It is. It anticipates. But I'm just trying to make a point about time here and about what Sunday actually means. You know, it used to be that you woke up early on Sunday morning and you went to Mass, right? You know, um, we have a lot of options now, you know, uh, that wasn't always the case. You know, and when, you know, if we were to spend, I teach a whole course, I have taught a whole course on the triduum. If you look at the triduum, and I'm jumping ahead, but there's no option. This is the time the community gathers. You know, but on Sunday, for Sunday Mass, the community doesn't gather all at one time. You know, and I know that's for pastoral practical reasons. You know, but um, for the triduum, it's no. You gather for the Mass of the Lord's Supper. This We all come at this time. No option. The Easter Vigil is at this time. No option. You know, you see what I'm getting at here? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I just want to be clear. Saturday night Mass is Sunday Mass. But I'm just talking about the day. You know. Anyway, let's take a break. Ten minutes. Graham, uh, for you again. But it's, I mean, just looking at the visual, you you have a sense of the seasons of the liturgical year, starting with Advent that has that kind of violet purple, uh, then moving into winter ordinary time, uh, then I'm sorry, Christmas, Christmas time, uh, you just get a sense, then you go into the first part of ordinary time, then Lent, and then notice the red. Oh, you don't have color. I'm sorry. I'll make sure I have it next week on the screen. But anyway, there's three days in red. That's the triduum. And we're going to talk about it tonight. And then it goes into Easter time and then the long ordinary time that we're just sort of almost at the end of now. But this That's is usually martyrdom. Oh, yeah. What's Thank that? you. That is usually martyrdom. martyrdom. Oh, passion. The passion, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So, yeah. Yeah. But see, I have, see here. Okay. Yeah. So if you Google liturgical year, you'll get various uh, um, images of it. The one that I have up is the one from liturgical uh, uh, liturgy training publications. Um, they do different artwork every year with their. Um, it's different. It should be. It's a, it's a different kind of purple. Yeah. Yeah. Usually vestments, for example, they look exactly the same, but uh, Advent is not specifically penitential. It's more hope and expectation, so it's a little different color. Uh, there was a time where they were trying to get blue approved, like a dark blue, but that didn't get approved liturgically. So it technically should be a slightly different purple than Lent. Uh, because it leads to confusion of what the seasons are about, which we'll, we'll hopefully we'll get to tonight. Dr. Eschenauer? Ah. Uh, actually, I found that out uh, recently in um, prepping for vestments, and uh, I could not believe like how many different things there are, and how many and the slight color variations. Because I found what I thought was going to be really good purple for next year's um advent uh, and when i showed it to my pastor he said uh, you can't wear that for advent that's a lent purple oh good <laughs> it looks exactly like every other purple on the <laughs> the website what's the the difference and he said it's very slight it's very slight you can see and some of them will have ornamentation to show like uh they might have um thorns or something in the border uh -huh. uh, for for Lent. Um, but yeah. this one didn't have anything like that. It was just uh, needing to know based on the, the color. And uh, it's, it's interesting because some of them, they are, some of the sets, they only come with one purple. That's ah. meant for both. Uh -huh. But if uh, if you go to a place that has the, the variations, you need to know which one, and otherwise you're wearing the wrong thing or for mass. You're wearing the wrong color. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> See? Excellent. Oh, and it's never pink for uh, rose. No, it's, it's rose. always rose, never pink. <laughs> rose, rose, yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful rose. Third Sunday. Good. All right. So let's dive back into this and see what we can finish up. You okay there in the classroom? You good? Good. Did somebody have a question in the class? Well, Dan was just saying, why is it rose? I was saying, because you combine violet and white, you get rose color. Oh, okay. Okay, it's just a comment. Okay. So we're going to look at the liturgical year, how the church deals with time and puts it in this calendar, the same way we, we put things in calendars, the church does it too. So here's a resource um, called Foundations of the Liturgy that I had home by 
Adolf Adams, he's a terrific writer. But anyway, he says that the liturgical year is a commemoration over the course of a year of the saving deeds which God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Beautiful. And we said it in different language before, right? So we're remembering uh, what Jesus did for us, right? The mystery of salvation. We're remembering it through the course of a year. And we do it in different ways, right? And very important to keep in mind here is that the Paschal mystery, right, is the heart and the center of the liturgical year. And that makes sense because we said it was the heart and the center of liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. That all, all liturgy, the document uh, that was one of the key themes in the Sacrosanctum Concilium, Paschal mystery, um, that it is the heart and the center of everything we do liturgically, and it's the heart and center of our calendar, right? Um, I'm on slide 18, but it, I have here the liturgical year is not a reenactment of the life of Jesus. This is a little nuance with this word reenact versus enact. Um, and this is a liturgical thing. Uh, strictly liturgical nuance but it's important and we need to be clear because in the where liturgy is concerned we don't re-enact we enact and because to reenact means to perform or represent it something that has happened before but and you'll notice when you read uh erwin's book he uses the correct language, enact. Um, because the liturgical year, okay, tells the story of Jesus Christ and makes the story present and active now. Makes it real. Remember that word actualize in the document? Makes it real now. So that this mystery of salvation, right, is made present for us now. That's a very different thing, all right? It's a very different, that's why I did that whole buildup of time. It's the different way of looking at time, you know, that it is here now. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's now, right? This is, remember what I said a few weeks ago, faith needs imagination. You know, and there's a beautiful book called, uh, that, that's the subtitle of the book. I think the name of the book is Lazarus Come Out, Why Faith Needs a, a Imagination. The author's last name is Cote, C-O-T-E. But it's a beautiful book on this whole thing that we have to be able to get beyond the, the, the words, the language, and we have to have these images. But to think about the, the, what Jesus said and what he did is present now. And the church makes this a reality in and through the liturgy, but here 
when we look at the whole year of how we celebrate the liturgy throughout a calendar year, that um, this liturgical year of these feasts and seasons is telling us the story of Jesus Christ, what he said, what he did, the mystery of salvation, but it is making it present for us now, all right? So the liturgical year gives meaning to the past, unrepeatable events. That's why I say it's not a reenactment, because Jesus died once, right? And his death is made present for us now. It's a difference, it's a nuance perhaps, and I don't mean to split hairs, but it's different. It's important, yeah. So the liturgical year gives meaning to the past, unrepeatable events so that the church can remember and celebrate the presence of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and among us today. And we always have to go back to the Jewish concept of memory, making it real now. The Exodus, was not just they were not remembering what happened then they were making the exodus a reality in their life at freedom from slavery and for us it's the same thing we are making our freedom from sin a present reality that jesus died and rose for us all right so the, an example all right and this is the clearest example that popped into my mind the other day when, if you were to look at the lectionary for mass during the night on Christmas, which is the uh, nativity of the Lord, the responsorial psalm is, I'm sure Aldemar knows what it is. <laughs> He's probably the only one. Maybe Govinda, I don't know, musicians. Today is born our savior christ the lord today you see and that's this whole everything i've been saying about time in the liturgy that to me just screams it today is born this not two thousand years ago was born our state today is born our savior that's a beautiful thing to contemplate you know um at Christmas Mass, today, right now, the Savior is born. And again, we need to have our faith imaginations going that how is the Savior born in me in the present? And every year it'll be different. That's why we go around in this cycle and come back to it. It's not once and it's gone. Every year we come back and we come back. So that was the best example that I could remember. But I'm sure if you went through the prayers, the Psalms and stuff, you know, for, which is a beautiful thing to do, you could find other examples as well. All right. So um, just getting back to this whole idea of the liturgical year, we have the liturgical day. Essentially every day is holy, is sanctified. All right. And that, is made clear when we look at the liturgy of the hours and the way that the liturgical day is is from midnight to midnight okay and um 
so as I said before, the church looks at the day, the week, the year, right? Um, so Sunday, as I mentioned before, is the original feast day, okay? And this is where the liturgical re year really started, with the day of the resurrection, the new Sabbath, if you will, all right? For the, the early Christians, so you remember, were still Jewish. You know, that, that, that day of the resurrection became important, so that becomes the new Sabbath, Sunday. And here it's referred to um, from the original apostolic tradition as the Lord's Day or the first day of the week, or sometimes you'll see, as we said before, the eighth day. All right, but it's the day of the resurrection. All right, and the, what I want you to get from this that it was the original first feast of the Christian calendar, if you will, of Christian time, Sunday. All right, and that's all that was important. And then gradually, uh, Harrison had asked before, like, how did this develop? The answer is gradually in time. So we celebrate, um, I'm on slide um, 20, and I have the cycle of the year. And if you remember from the table of contents in the document, what was first? The Paschal Triduum, right? which celebrates the Paschal mystery, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as one mystery, right? So the cycle of the year starts there. And this developed because Sunday, which was essentially Easter, celebrated every week, that this once a year um, feast of the resurrection started to come into place. Play. But it wasn't just the resurrection. It looked at the whole story, the passion, death, and resurrection. And that's what we have starting in the fourth century. It was Augustine that coined the term triduum, which meant three days. That this, these three days was essentially looked at as one event. And that event being the Paschal mystery, right? So in other words, early on, the death of Jesus and his resurrection wasn't separated. It did get separated down the line and it wasn't kind of put back together until the reforms of Vatican II. That's why there's still a lot of confusion. Um, that's how I understand it. Um, I came to the conclusion, in other words, of why there's confusion, because it's only since 1969 with this document that explains to us that the church wanted to go back to the original meaning of the triduum. Now, I wrote my dissertation on this, so I'm not going to bore you with a little detail. However, the triduum, the way we celebrate it now, from... Um, Holy Thursday night through Easter Sunday, through evening prayer on Sunday. All right, not too many people know that. It wasn't, and it's not Lent. Lent is over. But so many people are confused about it because prior to the reform, the Triduum was looked at as the last three days of Lent. But when we go back to history, to the fourth century, it wasn't. It was separate outside of Lent. So you see why you need to know the history to understand what we do now. 
all right? So, so this uh, three days, which by the way is the high point, I think as Harrison pointed out, of the liturgical year, our highest holy days is the Paschal Triduum. So you can see, as you said, that it makes sense that this is where it developed first, that it took what we do on Sunday and it made it into this bigger season, in a sense, these three days, all right? Um, so what for purposes here tonight is to remember that what we do now with the Triduum, which a lot of people don't understand, that it Lent ends with the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday night, Lent is over, and we enter into what would you would say, we, we stop the Lenten fast and we enter into what we would call the Paschal fast. So we're entering into a different, all I can say is a season of three days where we are contemplating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ over three days, but we're celebrating one event, Paschal mystery. But it's so great a mystery, we need three days to do it. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing. And this is an observation, not a judgment, but where is most people in Disney World? I hate to say it, <laughs> but it's true. It's, it's really true. And it's so sad that most of the church, oh, they'll go to Easter Sunday. And again, it's observation, you know, I think I used the phrase once, we, we, it's very easy for people to go from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. But it's so important to to catechize toward the, our highest holy days. I, I have a friend who's Jewish, and I, I asked her once, I said, I need to ask you this question, because I used to work in a parish where everybody was in Disney World. And um, for the, because it's vac school vacation. But anyway, I said to this friend of mine who's Jewish, not a very religious Jew at all. But I said to her, Lisa, please tell me, would you ever go on vacation at Yom Kippur? She said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You see, and that made me kind of sad that our many of our Roman Catholic people don't understand this high point of the liturgical year, our highest holy days, that we have these beautiful ancient celebrations and we need to be there. You know, I, uh, when I was in pastoral work and I worked with uh, people who were newly initiated at Easter, I, I would have my chance to be with them and talk to them uh, on Holy Thursday night. And I would say, if you don't remember anything else of your, of your journey of faith here, please promise me that no matter where you are in the world, that you will always be in a church during the Paschal Triduum, because it's so important, so important. Um, so anyway, I, I could, I do have a whole course on this, but I won't, not tonight. So um, in this document that we're talking about, about the um, universal norms of the liturgical year, it tells us clearly the Paschal Triduum of the Passion and Resurrection. And it's very clear to do this because prior to this revision, reform of the church, we separated passion and resurrection. 
we separated Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But again, we brought it back into its ancient meaning. And this is what this document does. So, the Paschal Triduum of the Passion and Resurrection of the Lord begins with the evening mass of the Lord's Supper, has its center in the Easter Vigil, and closes with Vespers of the Sunday of the Resurrection, Easter Sunday. It's really great to know that. I know I, I have an acquaintance, um, because certainly in monasteries people would do this, but I have an acquaintance that, that leaves his family dinner and everything and goes to church and says, evening prayer. That's amazing. You know, I don't even do that, but <laughs> that's amazing. Um, but, you know, it's worth taking it seriously, right? Um, so here, uh, moving on, uh, in this development of the cycle, Easter time. And notice, I'm not saying Easter season. The Roman Missal in this document uses Easter time. And I, as I said before, that's why I spent all that time talking about time, quote unquote. But Easter time is the 50 days from Sunday of the resurrection to Pentecost Sunday and is celebrated in joy and exultation as one feast day. Can you imagine? But the, the whole idea behind this is that it is so great a mystery, we need 50 days to unpack it. And pastorally speaking, it's very hard to maintain it in a parish. Very hard to maintain that Easter joy but we can do it through environment, music, you know, the flowers don't even last, you know, but we need to replenish them. Yeah. Keep the environment going. Keep the joyful Easter music going because it's Easter Sunday for 50 days, one great Sunday. And perhaps it needs, people need to be reminded of it. They do because they forget, they don't know this. But that's, it's really important. And the other thing that it can help people bring about the awareness that with each Sunday, it's not the Sunday, like the second Sunday after Easter, it's of Easter. Again, mm -hmm. words matter. So it's not, it's, it's correct to say the Sundays of Easter, that it's all Easter time. So that's important to be really intentional of how we speak about it, how we teach about it, how we preach about it, whatever the case may be. He is risen. It's in the present. Exactly. Yeah, that's exact. That's another example. Like today is born a savior. He is risen. Absolutely. And it's so good. Jesus Christ is risen today. Right. Yeah. It's great. And then, um, as you brought about that whole thing about eight, uh, we have a musician here in the class, uh, Aldemar, another musician, but she was thinking of eight, you know, an octave. And here, the first eight days of Easter time constitute the octave of Easter. That those eight days are celebrated as solemnities, like, like it's one day, you know? And again, you see, this is thinking of time very differently. You know, 50 days is Easter. And now more intensely, these eight days, this octave of Easter, it's it's one day. You know, it's like really. Yes, question? 
Instead of said. There you go. See? Okay. Yeah. The, the Easter Hallelujah. Yeah. yeah. Do they do they include the Gloria and the Creed in the Octave of Easter on weekday masses, or is it still just like uh, as far as like the rubric per se? Do they treat it like a weekday mass? I think it's treated as a weekday mass. Okay. Am I right? I don't know. I'd have yeah. to go back and look. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think so. so is, is it like, you know, sometimes you say, like, this is feast day, this is solemnity. And we have a creed and a gloria. Yeah, You're so right. I have to I have to be honest, I have to check. Yeah, I'm interested. Like, you do. Solemnities, per se? You, you, you do say the gloria and the creed. During the week? See, my memory is there. I would think so. That would be my inclination, but I don't want to give you the wrong answer. I like to check. I could. I like to check before I get to the But it is, it is true. I, can, I mean, I go to daily mass, but I can't remember back last Easter. New books. Yeah. All I'm, right. I'm not tired. And we're, we're going to have an opportunity to look at the Roman Missal, too, next, starting next week. I understand. All right. We're running out of time, but that's okay. We'll finish this up. Maybe we won't do the hours until uh, next week. Um, all right. So, Lent. The origin of Lent. And again, remembering that this that diagram wasn't drawn overnight. The origin of Lent is the immediate preparation for baptism. Go back to the early church and think about the catechumens, people who were becoming part of the Christian community. All right, at Easter, remember, that was celebrated at Easter, at the Easter vigil, remember in the fourth century, you know, those uh, golden, that golden age. But that we had to look backwards, that they needed an intense preparation. And that became what we now know as Lent, all right? And even when we look at the rite of Christian initiation of adults, Lent, the period of Lent is called purification and enlightenment. And it's not supposed to be a time for catechesis. But 
pastorally we we've messed that up as well forgive my <laughs> choice of words but we've messed it up it's it's supposed to be a time of re prayer retreat um purification looking at ourselves that not a time for catechesis but i'll try to talk more about that when we look at that ritual so lent was a time the origin of lent was for catechumens who were going to be further fully initiated so the document that we're looking at and sacrosanctum concilium both tell us that Lent is ordered to preparing for the celebration of Easter. Since the Lenten liturgy prepares for the celebration of the Paschal mystery, both for catechumens by the various stages of Christian initiation and the faithful who recall their own baptism and do penance. This is again, with the reforms of the liturgy, and this document coming out after the reform, that the original meaning of Lent is clearly presented for us here, that it's preparation for baptism. And if we're lucky enough to have catechumens in our parish, it becomes very clear. But if we never had a catechumen in our parish, all right, I'm being extreme here, we all, the baptized, must remember that Lent is a time for us to prepare to um, renew our baptismal promises, which we do at the Easter Vigil and on Easter Sunday, right? We all know that, but that gets lost. And during Lent, I'm always hard pressed to find a homily that even mentions baptism. But ever, all preaching in, during Lent should refer to baptism. Because during Lent, everything that we do, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, is to help us to renew our baptismal vocation. That gets lost, but that's the meaning. And it tells us this right here in this document. It's beautiful. I check the Gloria said every day is during the octave. Good. And you know, on the two Sundays, you have a second reading, but not a second reading during the week. During, right. Okay. Good. But All right. Yeah. So yeah, I would think I so it's thought treated like a feast day, it's then. treated like a feast day, and it should be. And that's what I thought the answer yeah. was, but I didn't want to be wrong. Yeah. God forbid. <laughs> I checked the rule book. Good. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Rob. That's good. So, so does that make sense? And that's what I want you to know about Lent. That it's for every all of catechumens, yes, who would technically be called the elect at that point. Um, because they would be the catechumens who were elected for initiation. Um, and But for all of us to prepare to renew our baptismal promises. that That's really important that once a year during Easter time, starting with the Easter vigil, that we have that opportunity to recall our baptism, to renew it. Um, because that's our vocation to live as uh, missionary disciples, um, right? Yes. That's great. Do this. Yeah. But it gets lost. It really does get lost. The people have to be taught this, and an awareness needs to be brought. We need to do it. We've got a lot of work to do. 
you know, and um, we have to find any way that we can uh, to do it. So then, again, if you see the development of this calendar is actually backwards to how we started with Advent, because now, then, now Christmas time, um, an annual celebration of the Paschal Mystery, the church has no more ancient custom, the document tells us, than celebrating the memorial of the nativity of the Lord and his first manifestations, okay? And it's interesting, and it's noted in this uh, book on liturgy and time, that, um, I mean, there's a whole lot to how the date for Christmas was chosen. You know, it has to do with even pagan celebrations, but I'm not going to get into that. But the one thing that we do know is we knew the date of Christ's death and records were kept. So therefore, because of his death record, we had somewhat of a birth record. So then the church went kind of backwards to figure out. So it was somewhat accurate um, at this time of year where we celebrate his birth. It's, it's somewhat accurate. Um, we can be sure of that. Uh, the Marty Mart liturgy and time goes into great detail with that. Um, so again, what's important here is that Christmas time hasn't begun yet. Maybe if you go to CVS, it has, or to Macy's or someplace, right? <laughs> as soon as Halloween's over, it's Christmas. We have to be intentional that it is not Christmas until the Vigil Mass on December 24th, right? That's a very hard thing to get people to think about. I know in my own home for years, we did not, well, when I was a kid, we didn't put up our Christmas tree till Christmas Eve. But when I had my own family, being very liturgical, we at least waited till the third Sunday of Advent. And I had to hear my kids saying, everybody has their Christmas tree up. And I said, well, it's Advent. You know, I was really strict about it. And then we kept it up until the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, which is when Christmas time ends. And everybody else's was out the door on December 26th, right? And the other thing I want to bring up, two other things about Christmas. Um, if you were to look at the Roman Missal, right and to me this is an interesting thing maybe you won't think it's so interesting but you'll see that on this what is called the nativity of the lord in the roman missal right you have the vigil mass which would be celebrated on um like whatever four or five or six o'clock on the 24th then you have mass during the night what I'm getting at here, we call it midnight mass, or in some churches they say, mid, what time is midnight mass? And it's at 10 o'clock. <laughs> My point here is midnight mass is not even part of the language of the church and never has been. I did research on it a couple of years ago. We never called it midnight mass. We made that up, you know, but it's mass during the night, which tells us we can celebrate it at, and a lot of parishes have moved it to, to nine o'clock or ten o'clock some have kept it at midnight which is lovely um but for practical reasons 
parishes have found it's they find it better to move it but the point is the missile calls at mass during the night then there's mass at dawn and mass during the day and if you look at the lectionary there's different readings for each one yeah so anyway i bring that to your attention then also that christmas has its own option that we celebrate the nativity of the lord today for eight days all right but then we celebrate christmas time um and it doesn't even end which a lot of people think with epiphany it ends with the feast of the baptism of the lord that's the last day of the christmas season and then we go into ordinary okay that's important so when we now we move backwards the church and i'll finish up with this but then the church said well we have preparation for the great feast of easter we let's have a preparation time for the for our celebration of the nativity of the lord so we have this season of advent and the um the document of the universal norms for the liturgical years talks about this twofold character of the season of advent a time of preparation for the solemnity of christmas which is the first coming of the son of god and then secondly looking toward the his second coming at the end of time okay and so advent is very different in character than lent and that's why vince is struggling to get the right purple uh for to make that apparent because advent is a period as the document tells us of devout and expectant delight it's not technically a penitential time it's a time of preparation preparing waiting it teaches us to wait which the secular world is not waiting it's christmas it's going to be christmas before it's thanksgiving you know and then you know if you watch the thanksgiving parade which is lovely they'll always say and now it's the opening of the christmas season so the secular world has a whole different concept of time so we it 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 presents us a problem in the church when we're trying to maintain time differently and we're trying to say no we are waiting so advent is tricky but we can do things and you know i used to when i worked in the parish i used to try to get this message across with parents to teach their children about advent but you know you know you can't tell people don't put up your lights this that and the other thing but I used to suggest do it gradually. Don't do it all at once. It's be beautiful. I used to love driving home through the neighborhood where I used to work and I'd see the lights gradually, the houses were lit up. That's very much what Advent is about, moving out of the darkness into the light. This this confident expectation of the birth of the sun, you know? And do things gradually, you know? And then make buying gifts and even writing out cards it can be sacred we buy gifts for people because we have the gift of jesus christ that is given to us teach our children that this is why we're buying a gift for this person or else it becomes this hectic frenzy time but if we could help people to embrace this 
it to me it would be so amazing the other thing is about advent is to really pay attention to the uh, uh, readings in the lectionary of of the people that we meet and who's the first one we meet on the first sunday of advent anybody remember john the baptist wow right prepare the way for the lord and then you know the prophet isaiah and everything he has to say about you know this time of expectation that our uh, jewish ancestors had you know we have that same expectation living in joyful hope it's so so it's a season that teaches us how to hope and to trust of what's to come an expectation and it teaches us to wait you know um and it's so wonderful and then certainly mary mary enters the scene and it doesn't get better than that you know and it's and we we need to um embrace the season and do what we can not to forget advent because it can get lost um i make it a point of in my own life to embrace it and that i have never gotten into that frenzy of shopping and all of that i made sure if there was anything i had to do when i had little kids it was done before because i nothing was going i love advent and nothing was going to get in the way of it um i think the first thing god lover my daughter did when she moved out of home after college was she put up her christmas tree the day because <laughs> we never did it and my son said to her don't you know what's advent so i did, i don't know but kids will be kids but anyway uh, i share a little comic relief with you so anyway to it's 9 30 so just so we don't leave the calendar incomplete ordinary time the first thing i want to say we're in ordinary time as we speak we're nearing the end of it there's nothing ordinary about it um ordinary comes from the word ordinal which means counted and it's a way in the liturgical books to keep track of the sundays you know uh that that's just the way it is so it's a period of 33 or 34 weeks that celebrates the mystery of christ outside of the high points now when you look at this on a human level human life we have high points in our life a wedding a birthday an anniversary but we don't have them every day right and we we couldn't probably even manage that well it's the same thing in the on the church's calendar we have high points but not every day not every season so we have this time where we learn to meet the risen lord in the seemingly ordinary everyday aspects of our life right and it can be such a beautiful thing particularly if we follow the lectionary as i said before the lectionary if that's our prayer and we have the readings for every day and we're attuned to the day the the solemnities the feasts the memorials and all of that during ordinary time it's not ordinary at all it's a, it's amazing it's filled with you know feast days uh saints days um etc etc so next week we'll pick up with the 
27, which is the slide number, and I'll do a little something for you on the Liturgy of the Hours, but then we have to move on to the Roman Missal. Yikes. Any questions? You have it. It's all on the syllabus. The yes. Yes. You have a final. Uh, perhaps next week I'll go over it. But you have a take-home final, and you also those in here for credit. The book review. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know we were going to have a final example here. It says, 